Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. For almost a century, uh, the left, as we know, has been waging a methodical and, and largely successful war on American institutions, our university, universities, K-12 schools, uh, the news media, Hollywood, our federal government bureaucracies, to name just a few. But during most of this time, business, even American big business, has remained the last bastion for those of us who believe in free people free markets and private property. But now even this is changing. Over the, over the past couple of decades and what the left likes to call their long march, this last remaining uh, leftist institution has been, non-leftist institution has been besieged. The battle's not over, but it does hang in the balance. To learn how this came about and where it's going, I've asked uh, Stephen Sokup author of The Dictator of Woke Capital, How Political Correctness Captured Big Business to Join. Um, he's senior commentator and publisher of the Political Forum, which provides research and consulting services to institutional investors. Uh, he knows the business well. He got his start with Prudential Securities in 1996 as a, a macroeconomic analysis and knows the, knows the ins and outs of uh, the world capital market. So Steve, I'm glad you're here. Um, you've written a great book. It, it tells a great history uh, of, of how we got here, but it also, I think, calls to mind exactly the thought that we've got to do something now. So, so frame the issue for me. Why, why, why is this the last bastion, and why do we need to uh, draw the draw the line in the sand here? First, thanks very much for having having me, Bill. I appreciate it. Um, this is, as you said, this is this is the culmination of a century-long battle uh, against the traditional institutions uh, of Western civilization, um, beginning in the 1920s, uh, after World War One, uh, after the Marxists were disappointed that the workers of the world did not unite, and the workers of the world, in fact, went to war uh, for their respective nations. Uh, the, the Marxists decided that they needed to figure out why this happened, why their revolution uh, did not occur. And what they decided was that they needed to break uh, the traditional Western Christian uh, cultural he hegemony uh, and to uh, foster a new cultural understanding uh, of man and his role in the world. Uh, and they've taken the institutions. Um, over the past hundred years, they've taken nearly all of the institutions uh, from uh, education to media to entertainment to uh, mainstream religion uh, have been taken over by uh, the cultural left. Uh, and big business is the only institution that has so far uh, managed to uh, stand its ground, to uh, hold its place against uh, the cultural Marxists. Uh, and it's the only thing right now that, that stands between us and the precipice. Um, big business uh, is the only bastion for conservative thought, uh, for apolitical thought, uh, and that's an important thing, uh, apolitical as opposed to, uh, you know, being deeply involved in political uh, ideas, uh, and, and it remains the only uh, 
hope for uh, salvaging our liberty. So you tell great stories in your book. One of the I, I, the story that's that's interesting is that in the twenties, when they figured the the workers of the world were not going to unite, they decided that maybe the church was the problem and the other cultural institutions uh, were the problem. And there was this very it's usually some little guy who writes things that's the problem. And in this case, we had a guy named Antonio Gramsci who founded the Italian uh, Communist Party. And the line I like is that uh, they locked him up. And one of the guys that locked him up said, for 20 years, we must stop this brain from functioning. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, it didn't stop functioning. I guess he wrote some 3000 pages of notes and they smuggled the notes out, then those notes became the playbook for what we're now seeing in America, which is the takeover of the cultural institutions. They decided not to deal with just economic, but go at culture. And they've been, as I point out in the opening, really successful. Now you say big business is the last reader. I, I think, I, I hope that's still true, but it looks to me the way corporations are behaving right now. Take a look at Georgia at first they, uh, they banned a piece of legislation in Georgia. Uh, I can't remember, was that was that an abortion bill that they were weighed in on Walt Disney and, yes. and, and Coca-Cola? And then again, with the Georgia voting really uh, fair and free election laws into place, then Major League Baseball joined the fray and decided to pull the, uh, the All-Star game out of Georgia. Uh, how, how, how much of, of this territory have we already ceded? Uh, well, we've conceded, we've ceded uh, far too much of it. Um, when I say that big business is, is the last bastion, I mean, theoretically, uh, it hasn't been taken over uh, completely. Uh, there's still some room uh, for us to operate, to push uh, those who would politicize capital uh, out of American business. Uh, we are not completely shut out as we are in academia uh, or in media, for example. Uh, so there is still some room to operate, but indeed, you're correct. We've, we've seeded considerable ground. Uh, the cultural left has been waging this battle uh, against business specifically probably for the last 30 to 40 years. Uh, we who wish to keep politics out of business and keep business uh, functioning uh, for business purposes uh, are way behind uh, in recognizing what's happening uh, in organizing and in taking action. Well, I think this all started back when South Africa with apartheid was on everybody's screen and it was on my screen. I mean, there was a successful battle to uh, engage in economic sanctions against South Africa because what they were doing, what the government was doing and a whole lot of it, a lot of us supported that and that was a good thing and all the corporations joined in. And so this notion of an activist corporation I think started out as a, as a good thing, but now where we are is it's morphed into something called ESG, which is what environmental, social, governance, good governance, and it's got all the all the playbook of the left embedded in those uh, those three terms. Yeah, well, you're correct. It, it did start what we understand as uh, socially responsible investing or uh, political. Uh, activism in capital markets uh, did in fact begin in earnest uh, with uh, the divestment from South Africa movement. Um, it gained a, you know, a little bit of steam in the 1970s and then really picked up 
uh, steam in the 1980s and, and became a significant issue. And that morphed into uh, an actual uh, investment technique uh, that was you know, called social responsible investing that was purely voluntary. Uh, it was bipartisan um, and it was designed specifically to allow uh, investors to sleep at night knowing that their investments were aligned uh, with their personal and political well, values. Weren't, the, weren't those originally uh, conservative uh, uh, movements where they called them sin stocks and they didn't want to be in gambling or sex or other things like that? And so there are a lot of conservative uh, funds that, uh, that engaged in this. Yeah, absolutely. That's As I said, it was voluntary and it was bipartisan, uh, which means that you could have uh, the little sisters of the poor uh, wanting for their uh, investments not to be aligned with companies that did business with birth control or abortion uh, manufacturers, or it could be, uh, as I said, um, you know, various uh, left-wing uh, churches uh, not wanting to be involved with South Africa or not wanting to be involved with armament manufacturers. It, it was bipartisan, and it was something that functioned uh, perfectly well uh, on a voluntary basis, the only cost uh, to the investor was the upfront acknowledged possibility and likelihood, in fact, uh, that they would take a hit on their return on investment. Um, if they wanted to invest in these stocks that allowed that, you know, that sued their conscience, they had to be aware that they would probably take a hit, uh, that they would return less than uh, a portfolio uh, that was that contained all of the companies would produce, uh, but they did so voluntarily, uh, and it was a system that functioned fairly well for probably two decades. The uh, I want to frame this in a way that we can we can break into components we can understand. So on the one hand, we've got the issues within big business now, where they their community foundations and their marketing departments and. Uh, their, their, their government people in Washington have all moved pretty hard left. And that's true for the most, the biggest companies, certainly even the business roundtable, which is the hundred largest companies has moved into something called stakeholder, stakeholder capitalism away from shareholder capitalism. So you've got the companies themselves, which are moving left, but then you've also got the investor community with this ESG movement moving hard left and it's embodied in, in Larry Fink and BlackRock and BlackRock runs now what seven trillion dollars maybe eight trillion dollars but who's counting uh, uh, and they're using he's a he's a zealot I mean he believes firmly in this global warming climate change and and the need for companies to toe the line with carbon emissions and things like that yet there is a little hypocrisy here because Larry also just got approval to uh Open the large, open the first wholly owned American mutual fund in which guess which country, China. In People's Republic of China. Yep, China. Absolutely. And if you look at the 25 top carbon emission cities uh, uh, in the world, I think China's got about 23 of them on it. I don't yeah. know. I don't know who the other two that aren't Chinese, but uh, so on the one hand they're saying, "Gosh, companies, you got to toe the line with this carbon emissions." On the other hand, he's making a fortune in China. Yeah, well, you know, it, it gets even more interesting when you talk about BlackRock and, and China and, uh, you know, carbon emissions. Um, yesterday was, I believe, the 27th anniversary of a piece that was written uh, by talk, Dr. Charles uh, uh, Jacobson, who runs the uh, uh, 
American Anti-Slavery Association, American Anti-Slavery Group, uh, about um, the ongoing uh, slave trade in North Africa. Um, and it turns out uh, that in the early 1990s, mid-1990s, and into the 2000s, um, one, of the one of the countries that was most responsible for trading Black slaves uh, in uh, Africa uh, was Sudan. Uh, and the Republic of Sudan, or the, the, the uh, leaders of Sudan uh, were able to do so and were able to prosper and were able to function uh, because they were paid essentially uh, by uh, the People's Republic of China uh, that was uh, prospecting for oil uh, in Sudan. Uh, and, and the company, uh, the state-owned uh, Chinese company, uh, listed its public arm eventually as PetroChina. Uh, so PetroChina was essentially supporting and, and backing up uh, the regime in Sudan that was conducting a slave trade. Um, the largest single shareholder uh, of PetroChina uh, in the world uh, is BlackRock. Um, BlackRock uh, owns, I believe, six or seven percent uh, of all outstanding shares of PetroChina on the Hong Kong exchange. Uh, and this, you know, it's a company, it was at one point in time the largest. Uh, petrochemicals company in the world, the largest company in the world, uh, and continues to be uh, a manufacturer uh, of fossil fuels uh, for the Chinese market, which, as you say, is, is a very dirty uh, carbon producing market. Uh, and, and so the, Larry Fink is, you know, the primary shareholder in this company that has all sorts of social governance uh, and environmental issues going, you know, dating back at least 25 years. Uh, you're watching the Bill Walton show, and, and I'm here with Phil or, uh, Stephen Sukup, who's author of a great book on uh, um, political correctness and big business. And we're talking about the fact that BlackRock, the very virtuous Larry Rock, indirectly owns a, a slave trading company in um, in Sudan. Uh, oh, by the way, we did a show on that. Uh, you can find it at thebillwaltonshow.com with. Uh, Marine, who, our guest was Phil Magnus. We did it last week. And if you tune into that, I think you can see what the truth was about the American slave uh, institution. Uh, very interesting. So let's, let's come back to the here and now. So BlackRock is the largest institutional investor, about $5 billion of, or it's 5 trillion of that money is, is uh, passive. But even though it's passive and they don't trade shares, they're still active as a, as a, as they're weighing in on proxies for companies and how they're governed. And when you look at their market share, the average doesn't 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 BlackRock own about uh, 20, 25 percent of all the major corporations uh, listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Well, if if you take the big three passive asset management firms, uh, which are BlackRock, which I, I believe today they just announced profits. Uh, from last quarter and, and announced assets under management. I believe they're close to 10 trillion uh, in total assets under management. If you, but so if you take BlackRock, uh, Vanguard and State Street, together they have well over $20 trillion uh, in assets under management. Um, and, and they're all very uh, aggressively pushing the idea that sustainability uh, is the most important idea in investments. That's important. So it's not just Larry Fink at BlackRock. He's not right. over here. The CEOs of these other big money management firms are in lockstep with him. Well, they are now. You know, for, for decades, uh, or for decades, for years. Um, lockstep, the, lockstep may be a little 
exaggeration, but not by much. Right. Um, for, for years, the, these big three who control, as you say, together, they control somewhere between 20 and 30% of every single S&P 500 company. Um, something like 19 out of the 20 biggest companies in the country, their primary stockholder, their, pri their, their first shareholder uh, is either BlackRock, State Street, or Vanguard. Um, and, and for years, they said, you know, there's no collusion between uh, the three of us. We all have different investment goals. We all have different aims. We are all competing with one another. Uh, but that's changed over the last couple of years, as all three of them have pledged fealty uh, to this idea of sustainability, uh, this idea that um, the most important uh, characteristic of a company is how it is dealing with climate change, how it is prepared to deal uh, with a zero carbon future, et cetera. Uh, and so they're making all of their decisions, all of their investment decisions, at least on paper, uh, based on the idea of sustainability. And, and to clarify, that's not just their ESG funds, that's all of their investment funds. Um, you know, Fink's letter in uh, 2020 and then 2021, his letter to uh, shareholders uh, and to CEOs was very explicit that he intends for all of his company's resources uh, to be used uh, to promote sustainability. So what we have now is, is a major block, um, as I said, somewhere between 20 and 30% of every single S&P 500 company uh, voting for sustainability uh, and therefore uh, voting against board members, uh, executives, uh, and resolutions uh, that would seek to promote business first uh, and politics second. Who was the small hedge fund that just got three directors elected to the uh, the Exxon board? Right, that's engine number one. Uh, is, is a small hedge fund uh, that is devoted very aggressively uh, to environmental uh, to environmentalism and to encouraging uh, radical environmental practices in business. Um, and they challenged Exxon uh, on at their annual shareholder meeting um, and put three candidates up. Uh, for the board of directors. Uh, historically, this would have been nothing but a blip. Um, a small hedge fund with very little uh, in assets under management would not have had an opportunity to do, to do anything. Uh, but in this case, all three of the big three decided to get behind their push uh, and voted for their candidates, uh, engine number one's candidates uh, for the Exxon board of directors. So they put three radical environmentalists on the Exxon board uh, simply because they had the power to. So Larry Fink and the, the other major money managers all voted yes for these three directors? Yes. And they, and they knew that uh, they, these three directors thought that Exxon ought to be in a wind and solar business instead of the oil business? Yeah, absolutely. So, they, so, they knew that specifically. You know, I, I'm, I'm, my mind is boggling a little bit because I used to be chairman CEO of New York Stock Exchange Company myself back in the, in the old days. And I thought I had a job of, of, of making money for my investors and we did a pretty good job at that, but it was a fairly pure focus on doing the right thing, but also doing profitable things. Now, if I'm Larry Fink and I know I won't be, I'm voting for directors who think that the business Exxon is in, they ought to get out of, isn't that completely violating his fiduciary responsibility to the people who trust him with their, with their savings dollars? Well, you would think that uh, that would be an issue, uh, but uh, Fink in particular has done a very good job uh, over the past five years or so 
of making uh, the bogus argument uh, that to invest in uh, environmentalism, to invest in diversity, to invest in sustainability, to invest in all of these ESG principles uh, will in fact uh, produce long-term profits and long-term benefits uh, for the corporations that are, that are forced uh, to do these things. Uh, so he, he's made the case uh, that he thinks that this is uh, long-term uh, a profitable uh, gamble, uh, and he's convinced a lot of people of that. Um, you know, money continues to pour into ESG funds at a ridiculous pace. It is without question uh, the hottest investment sector uh, in the world, uh, particularly in Western Europe and the United States. Uh, and, and he has no uh, qualms whatsoever about doing this, and most uh, large institutional investors have low, no qualms about buying his spinoff. Boy, the people who put their money to work that don't know what they're doing boggles. Uh, let's break this down. ESG investing, energy, you know, that's carbon footprints and greenhouse gas emissions. The, the S stands for social, which is human rights, equity, all the sort of things that are, that are becoming problematic, probably critical race theories in there. Uh, the... Uh, the G is governance, which we just talked about, is which are who's on the board of directors and what what interest do they represent? The ESG portfolio, though, if you take a look at an index fund, which is where a lot of the money is now, that's just an index of the companies that comprise the top hundred companies on the stock market or whatever whatever basket of securities you want, and compare that to the ES fund, ESG funds that are being sold to investors now. They're essentially the same portfolio because the FANG stocks, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, you know, Netflix, whatever, those are all considered ESG um, um, on, on the good side of ESG. They also happen to be the big, biggest companies by market cap. So if you're in an index fund, you pay about 20 basis points to have, you have your money managed. If you want to be virtuous, maybe less than that, maybe 0.7 basis points. Uh, if you want to be in an ESG fund, you might pay what, 25, 30 basis points. So you're paying roughly four times what you'd pay to be in the ESG fund to own the same portfolio. Yeah, correct. Am I, am I, am I, have I missed anything? I mean, I, I've been getting more and more interested in this and I'm trying to find out where's the beef in this and there is no beef in ESG investing. Well, that's one of, that's one of the, the, the complaints with, with ESG portfolios uh, is that they, they pretty well track uh, you know, a tech portfolio. Um, in fact, there is considerable research uh, that shows that most of uh, the alpha, most of the, the gain produced uh, by ESG investments uh, is not related to ESG factors, but, it, you know, related to the fact that ESG companies thus far tend to be really good companies. As you said, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, um, they're, they're good companies. Good, 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 in the sen good in the sense of highly profitable. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and so uh, there are uh, those out there who claim that ESG is, is a scam designed specifically to raise uh, management fees, um, which, you know, the evidence would support that charge. Uh, as you said, uh, you can buy an index fund with all of those same companies uh, for a quarter of the management fee as you can buy an ESG fund. Uh, so yeah, in fact, there there is a, a certain amount of uh, deception going on here uh, that has has caused people to uh, 
jump whole, uh, you know, with both feet into uh, an investment uh, trend that ends up costing them a considerable amount of money. So we don't really know, though, what the long-term effect is of ESG investing, because the this has gotten fashionable the last four or five years. And, and since the ESG funds we've identified are the same as a tech fund, and techs have done tech stocks have done very well. What are they, 35% of the, uh, the S&P 500 now? Um, it, the returns are about the same, so ESG investing looks okay. Right. But what we don't know yet is if you really, let's take Exxon an example. Exxon makes a lot of money. They get three directors, the directors influence other people. They get people saying, well, we got to get out of fossil fuels. I mean, what's going to happen if you're a shareholder of, uh, of Exxon and they decide to get out of fossil fuels to get into a business they don't really know? Right. Well, it, that's the question. Uh, it, 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 in fact, goes beyond simply what happens to the shareholders. Uh, you know, ESG and stakeholder capitalism uh, profess that they're about uh, more than just the shareholders, that they're worried and concerned uh, about the rights of uh, all of the potential stakeholders of a company, which includes the environment and its customers uh, and, and things like that. And by forcing uh, fossil fuel companies uh, to abandon their core business, uh, what we're doing essentially is setting up uh, an energy crisis, uh, whether it's six months, 12 months, five years down the road, where we're going to have, we're going to struggle to produce enough uh, energy uh, in order to heat and cool and uh, you know provide electricity. Uh, we saw a little bit of of how this works uh, in Texas this past winter, where um, the state had invested uh, very heavily in providing alternative uh, fuel. That I, I think wind, I think wind and solar were about 25 percent of their their energy supply. Right. Uh, and, and so when you, when you push companies to, to do things like that, to get out of their core business, to get into uh, to get into business lines that they're not as familiar with, you run the risk of, of creating a deficit uh, of their original core business, which in, in the case of energy is, is clearly one of the most important uh, commodities in the world. So uh, you're watching the Bill Walton show. I'm talking with Steve Sulkup, who's the author of uh what do we call it? The woke corporation. Uh, how big business got captured by political correctness. And we're talking about uh, Exxon and, and how um, Larry Fink and the other institutional investors managed to get three directors elected who really don't believe they should be in the oil and gas business. And we, so stay tuned. This, this story is yet to, uh, yet to be unwound. So we've, we've identified the players and you've got an excellent chapter in your book that talks about the various players. We've also got in addition to the, 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 the funds themselves, we've also got proxy advisors and proxy right. advisors, they're the ones when companies send out proxies saying we want to elect a director, we want to issue more shares, we want to do this. People get to put things on the proxy a proxy and, and the proxy advisors are supposed to tell investors whether to vote yay or nay. Is right, that right. describe that world a bit? Cause that's a, that's well, a known world, but they've got a lot of power. Right. For example, if, if you're uh, managing a, uh, you know, an S and P 500 uh, fund uh, for institutional clients uh, you have um, a considerable amount of work uh, to do uh, come shareholder meeting season. Um, your responsibilities uh, is to do due diligence on every single 
proposal, every single manager, every single uh, board of director for every single company that you hold. Uh, and that's asking an awful lot of people uh, when you're talking about, you know, say 500 companies. Um, and, and so what these proxy advisory services uh, do is they come in and say, look, we'll do all of that research. That is our job. We'll do all of the research and then we'll tell you how to vote. Um, and for obvious reasons, uh, a, a great many uh, 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 wealth managers and asset managers uh, uh, alike believe that, they, that this, is, this is an invaluable service. Uh, they couldn't get by without it. They couldn't get by without somebody else doing the due diligence for them. Uh, the problem is that both of the companies that dominate this market, and that's ISS, uh, Institutional Shareholder Services, and Glass-Lewis, uh, who together, uh, I think, control about 97% of the shareholder uh, of the proxy advisory service business. Um, they're both very uh, heavily leaning to the left. And what they advise uh, uh, in shareholders uh, and investment advisors to do is, is to uh, vote for uh, activist uh, boards of directors, activist executives, uh, and activist shareholder uh, resolutions. Uh, so the, the overwhelming majority uh, of advisors are getting advice uh, to vote uh, in favor of uh, the politicization of uh, capital. So the stars are aligned. We've got State Street, uh, BlackRock. Is Fidelity in this group as well? Or are they? Uh, Fidelity is, is probably uh, a smaller player okay. in this as well. And, and then we've got the two big ad proxy advisory firms. And Aren't the overwhelming at like 99% of the of the activist proposals uh, put on corporate proxies coming from the left? Oh, absolutely. Um, the, the left, if you look in the book, uh, you'll see that the, the chapter on those who are active uh, on the left who are, who are making uh, politics uh, in business part of part of their uh, their job is in the neighborhood of 40 pages. Uh, the chapter, the converse chapter on uh, the people who are pushing back against this, people who want to get politics out of business, I believe is eight or nine pages. Um, and, and that is reflected in uh, the way uh, that proxy uh, resolutions uh, are proposed and, and the way they're voted on as well. Um, I think um, to date, the Free Enterprise Project, which is run by our friend Justin Danhoff, uh, is the only active you know, full-time active uh, shareholder service pushing back against the weaponization uh, of capital for political purposes. Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, and they can only do so much. I did a show with Justin and Matt Schlapp a few weeks ago and uh, shameless plug here, you can find it at the BillWaltonShow.com. Uh, and for years, Justin labored on as uh, maybe the sole um, activist on our side. and and. You know, for people who want to know how they can make change, the, the proxy process, getting something on a proxy makes companies pay attention. And you don't have to own a lot of shares. What's the threshold now? It's about $2,000 worth of stock that gets you uh, a seat at the table? You know, I'm not sure what uh, they've done. It, the Trump administration proposed uh, different rules for that uh, just before the election, I believe, and I'm not sure where that stands. But, but yeah, it's a small, it's, it's a small amount. We don't have to give it. Not it, very much, right. For a few hundred shares, you you get you've got a seat at the table, 
And, you know, people who are upset about Coca-Cola are upset with, uh, um, you know, other publicly traded, Delta, other publicly traded companies who are, who are doing woke things. They can get into the business of putting, uh, putting uh, items on their proxy. And then if you do that, uh, they have to talk with you. Because, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, Justin, Justin has had outsized influence, uh, you know, for, for being the one person who's been out there fighting this. You know, he's, he's done an awful lot of good in large part because, as you say, um, companies prefer to keep this type, you know, controversial things off of their proxy ballot. Uh, and so if one, if a, uh, a resolution comes in um, and if the SEC says, yes, you have to have this on your ballot, uh, the company would prefer to negotiate. Uh, they would prefer to do whatever they can to keep this uh, out of the public eye, to keep it off their ballot. Uh, and, and so just one person, uh, in this case, Justin, uh, has been able to get quite a few concessions from large uh, companies over the past several years, uh, simply by being, uh, you know, a squeaky wheel. Um, and, and I just want to clarify one thing. Um, it takes $2,000 or so uh, of, of a stock to uh, propose uh, a uh, proxy resolution or a, a shareholder resolution, uh, but it takes only one share uh, to get you in the door to the shareholder meetings, uh, to allow you to ask a question at a shareholder meeting, to put the CEO on the spot, uh, and to vote a proxy. Um, so uh, you don't have to be heavily involved uh, in uh, investments. You don't have to be uh, you know, a, a major shareholder to, to do this. You just have to be uh, in the game. Well, I think a lot of us are really upset about the way major corporations are, are deciding that they're going to tell us or they're going to try to steer things politically. They're trying to change what the Georgia legislature is doing and that's happening all over the, all over the country. This is a way for activists to be engaged with these companies and they have to pay attention to you. And that one share, if it gets you in the door, you get a chance to talk to a CEO. And now I happen to enjoy the, the, the process as a CEO running a shareholder meeting. I even had some short sellers and that made things even more lively. But it's, uh, um, you know, most CEOs don't want to be engaged that way and they don't want to take the heat publicly. So it's a big opportunity to, to have an outside voice and, and some of these things are upsetting. Uh, Steve, where should we where should we take this next? I mean, there's an amazing what your book's amazing. I, I can't I want to make sure I get the title right. I don't have it right here in front of me. So you give me the name of your book. Give me a shameless plug, Steve. It's the dictatorship of woke capital. Okay, dictatorship of woke capital, and we're identifying the dictators. Yes, we've got the we've got the overlords in this in the in the investment companies, and we've got the ones at proxy advisory. Who are the other players on the uh, on the scene attempting to dictate outcomes? Well, there are a number. There are a number of players uh, within the C suites uh, at some of these companies. Uh, um, Tim Cook uh, at Apple is, is one of the most aggressive social justice warriors uh, here at home in the United States. There's there's not an issue uh, related to social justice. That, that comes up that he doesn't get involved in and write an op-ed about and donate shareholder money to. Uh, and yet he's, he's connected at the hip uh, to the CCP, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, because uh, they allow him uh, to run his large, Apple's largest manufacturing hub uh, and Apple's second largest 
uh, customer base is is in the China is, is in People's Republic of China. Uh, so he he's very well connected with uh, the CCP, uh, and yet he continues to uh, promote his social justice bona fides uh, here at home. Um, you know, and he's one example. Jeff Bezos at Amazon is another example. Bob Iger, the former CEO of Disney, uh, is another example uh, of a very activist uh, executive. Um, we always like to say that uh, pressure on businesses comes from three directions. It can come from the bottom up, uh, which is employees who uh, push their companies to, to get political. Uh, it can come from the top down, which is the CEOs. Uh, Bob Iger, Tim Cook, and the, and the, the like. Uh, and then it can come from the outside in, which is the activist shareholders, uh, Larry Fink, BlackRock, et cetera. Uh, you're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Steve Sokop, and we're talking about uh, uh, some of our biggest corporations, Disney, BlackRock, and Apple, making common cause with the Chinese Communist Party. And what do we think about that? Steve just wrote a piece. I just love the title. What is wrong with these people? <laughs> Steve, Steve, what's the gist of your, your story? You mentioned the, you, you name these names. I mean, talk about the, uh, and you point out in this, and I, I know it's true. These are not stupid men. I mean, I would say, you know, I just did a show on Charles Murray on IQ. I would say these guys are in the cognitive elite. Yet when it comes to moral judgments, I'm, I'm mystified as to how they, how, they, how they divide up this world of what's good. Uh, it's it really, in, in many ways, it's a mystery uh, how they can uh, internally rationalize uh, their claim to be political liberals, claim to be in favor of social justice, and yet uh, participate so uh, unabashedly uh, in the uh, governance uh, function of the, the People's Republic of China. Um, when the people of Hong Kong uh, were rebelling uh, two years ago before the uh, the mainland Chinese uh, instituted their security law in Hong Kong. Uh, the people were revolting, uh, and and they were pushing for uh, independence. Uh, and one of the apps that they were using to organize uh, their uh, protests uh, was available on uh, the Apple App Store, um, and. Uh, the Chinese communists told Tim Cook that they did not want this app available anymore in Hong Kong. And Apple complied. Um, they took the app off of their app store. Um, and and it, it's amazing uh, that they would do this, that they, that they would even consider this, uh, you know, given what was at stake in Hong Kong and, and given their claims uh, to be uh, activist uh, liberals here in the United States. Uh, so it's, it's amazing uh, the type of hypocrisy uh, that they engage in, and, and it's, it's sort of baffling as to why they would do so. About the only explanation I can come up with is that they believe uh, that they have a sense of how to uh, rectify all of this in the end that nobody else does. I, I think I referred, I'm not sure if it's in that piece or not, they refer to themselves, or they, they essentially are Gnostics. Uh, they are- uh, They're what? I didn't- They're Gnostics. Uh, Gnostics, they, okay. Yes, they, they believe they, 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 have, they understand things in a way the rest of us don't. Right, they believe they have the secret to uh, you know attaining heaven on earth, uh, and that if we'll all just shut up and follow them, uh, that they'll in the long run they'll take care of everything for us. So this is the same thing we're seeing with uh, 
Jack Dorsey and, and Zuckerberg and the rest of the social Absolutely. media titans that they all suffer from. I love, I love the word Gnostic. They've got secret knowledge of the meaning of life that the rest of us do not. But somebody else had another word for that. I think Hayek called it the fatal conceit. Yeah. I mean, I happen to think Larry Fink and the rest of the people who bought the climate change are flat wrong. And that there are many things, there are many legitimate scientists can say, yeah, we may be warming a little bit, but the earth is 10 times cooler than it was, uh, you know, 200,000 years ago. I don't know what the numbers are. There are all sorts of, there's, there's all sorts of science. It's a little bit like the blackout on some of the science from coming out of the pandemic. Uh, we're not allowed to talk about this or that. There's a blackout on, on, on climate science. And I, I happen to believe in knowing people that are in this business of uh, studying it, they're wrong. And yet they've got the power and they're directing all these resources and they could be running us right off a cliff. Well, it's even worse than that. Even, even if you believe 100% uh, what Larry Fink tells you about climate change, uh, that we have to change uh, the way we uh, produce energy, that we have to do it now or the world's going to end. Even if you buy all of that 100%, uh, research has shown, several studies have shown that most of the innovations in alternative uh, energy come from the large uh, petrochemical companies, come from the large energy companies. They do not come from small startups. They do not come uh, from little companies saying, you know, we're gonna change the world. They come from the, the companies that have the resources uh, to invest in research. Uh, and, and so by changing those companies, uh, by uh, trying to uh, divest from those companies, restricting funds to those companies, what we're doing is we're slitting our own throats. Even if you buy uh, the climate change narrative, uh, 100%. Well, and there's also the hidden costs of making that shift to wind and solar. I had Mark, uh, Mark, uh, who's our, who's our guy? From, no, Mark uh, from Manhattan Institute. Uh, oh goodness, it'll come right back. Um, anyway, so we, we've done it. It turns out that most of the wind and the solar equipment is, 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 uh, comes from China and that the, and that the footprint of uh, wind and solar is like 20 times the footprint of, of uh, fossil fuels and that the, the environmental costs of this, you, the, the, the wind turbine, the, the turbine blades are not, are not biodegradable. They don't go away forever. And so right. we're creating a massive environmental problem with the so-called clean energy. And yet we're not allowed to throw that, uh, those costs in the equation. And almost nobody knows that. Right. I'm sorry. Uh, thanks, Maureen. It's Mark Mills who was on the show, and another shameless plug. He's also at uh, thebillwaltonshow.com, as as we'll find Stephen Sokup soon with this appearance. And we've covered about 20% of what we need to cover from your book, uh, Stephen. What what did get? One of the things I want to go back to is you did an extraordinary history of how we got to where we are. In this, in this, and you did it back to taking all the way back to the progressives in the late 19th century, and then took it through. We mentioned Gramsci and the cultural Marxism, but there's a strong strain of rule by experts in all of this, and those of us who believe in freedom are are rankling under it. I mean, the, the, trace the trace these threads just a minute before we close. Uh, when I'm asked to define woke capital, uh, I define woke capital as a top-down, anti-democratic movement 
uh, on the part of some of the biggest uh, and most important leaders in business uh, to change the way American business functions and to change the relationship between the American citizen and the American state. Uh, and the key term, I think, in that is anti-democratic. Um, as you say, I, I, I trace a lot of this back uh, to uh, the progressives uh, and specifically to uh, Johns Hopkins, uh, where Richard Ely was a professor and uh, Woodrow Wilson was one of his students. Uh, and the two of them devised the idea that in order for uh, the American polity to survive, uh, that we needed to have a governing class uh, that could temper uh, the uh, ignorance and the selfishness uh, of the masses, uh, a, a class that was separate from uh, the government, an administrative class that could not essentially be touched, uh, that would be able to offer professional guidance uh, and professional administration uh, to the state in order to make sure that the important things got done and that the people didn't get in the way. Uh, and, and we see in uh, woke capital, we see in uh, the ESG movement, we see in the stakeholder movement, uh, the remnants uh, of this uh, original uh, proposition. Uh, these are still people who believe that they have to take care of us uh, because if we're allowed to take care of ourselves, we won't do the right thing. Uh, and I think that's the most important thing to understand is that this is intentionally anti-democratic. Um, they wouldn't appreciate that term, but they do, uh, they wouldn't deny that this is designed specifically to cut the people out of the process in order to get the important things done. So I'd encourage everybody and I will do, a, a, we'll have a cover on the, on the show itself when we, when we do this. Dictator, dictatorship of woke capital, how political correctness captured big business. There's much more in it than that, including the first part, which is a very succinct history of, uh, of what, uh, what Stephen was just talking about. Uh, and uh, Stephen, where can we find you and your work? Um, well, right now you can find us at wokecapital.org. Um, this is uh, going to be, uh, when it's completely up and running, uh, the uh, web arm of our nonprofit arm, uh, which is intended on sharing uh, information uh, about uh, capital markets. There'll be a five. There'll be a five hundred one c three, so we can, yeah. can support. Right you. now, we're we're a project of the American Principles Project Foundation, so we we are uh, donations can be made to them in on our behalf. Uh, but we will uh, hopefully within the next six months have our own five hundred one c three designation. Yes. But wokecapital.org is where you can find us. Okay, Stephen Sokup, thank you. This has been really interesting, and I want to get you back on. Maybe I can get you and Justin back on. That would be great. Tell some more stories about uh, about this fight we're in. Anyway, thanks for joining, and uh, we'll, we'll see you next time. As I mentioned, you can find this show and all the other shows we've done on related topics on the BillWaltonShow.com and and also all the other major podcast platforms. And, and most of them can still be found on YouTube. We've only had a couple pulled off. So uh, anyway, thanks for joining and we'll see you again soon. Steven, thank you, Bill. Thank you, great, good. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over a hundred episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our interesting people page and send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.